0: We are in Mark 14, so um, last week we had this interesting text where Jesus talks in somewhat in code, and uh, so coming off the heels of this warning to stay awake, to stay awake, to stay, sorry, Uh, some of you might need that a little more than others, but I, I know that, I know that Especially tonight, with uh, spring break right around the corner, and um, you know, easy to kind of disconnect and and figure out what's going on. Um, so I, I'd love for us to kind of catch what's going on here because there's some really interesting things happening in this in this chapter um, that that really do have an impact on on us on a regular basis. So I want us to to pay attention. Um, somebody, I need a reader who's going to. Who's willing to do that? Anybody on this front row that's looking down? Abby? Okay. She, she raised her hand. I do owe you. Maybe I'll let you read later. Oh, glory. Okay. Glory. All right. Go ahead, Abby. Read verses 1 and 2. Fourteen. Yeah, 14, 1 and 2. It was now two days before the
1: Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him.
0: For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay. So, Passover and Feast of the Unleavened Bread. These are essentially two celebrations that really kind of combine into one. Um, the, the background is in Exodus chapter 12. Of course, you most of you probably recognize or are familiar with this idea of the Passover. It's, it's the time when, when God passed over those, who, those Israelites who had um, the lamb's blood painted above their door. As this kind of last and final plague, um, and 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 it worked because God, well, Pharaoh released the Israelites and let them go, and so this this Passover is this this signifying event of the sacrifice of this lamb to to um, to save his people, to save their people, and then the feast of the unleavened bread, was essentially that when when Pharaoh said it's time to go, they just quickly gathered their things. They didn't have time to make leavened bread, and so they took whatever they had with them, and and, and so hence this this tradition of the unleavened bread. <clears throat> when they stopped to eat this unleavened bread, it was it was this, this um this this moment of freedom. And so you have the combination of these two things. You have the sacrifice that brought that, that saved them, and then you have this this freedom from slavery, all wrapped up in these. In these two events, it's really kind of became one. <clears throat> um, during the Passover time, Israel, or J- Jerusalem actually, there, there was anywhere from 85,000, they say, to to 300 and some thousand people um, journeying a pilgrimaging from all over Israel to Jerusalem. So you have this mass movement of people closer and closer to Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem itself was a, was a town probably anywhere from uh, 60,000 to 100, 100,000 or so. So you have, you have at, at, at the low end 150,000 to up to 400 some thousand people potentially in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And so you, you see anytime there's in Jerusalem there's an increase in people, there's an increase in tension. And so you're going to see kind of how this is playing out and there's a lot of significance to it. Um, notice how the, the, the priests and the scribes, notice what they want to do. They want to kill. Which, you know, we read that and we go, oh yeah, because they've been trying to do that for a while. But it still doesn't take away um, what Mark is trying to highlight here. Like, what are the jobs of the priests and the scribes supposed to be for the people? If not to, to know the law and to pass on the law, and to um, equip the people, and love the people, and direct the people. And instead, they want to kill. They want to break the law, and they want to use whatever means they can to justify um, doing it. And and so, so right off the bat, Mark is drawing some some major attention to something that should stand out to us. And it says the reason the reason for to not want to kill is because they don't want to do it. Um, during the feast, lest, lest there be an uproar um, we don 't exactly know the exact reason why we, we can probably guess why we think he he thinks they think that, but it could be a couple reasons: one, it could be the fact that uh, Jesus has gained popularity and and you know all these people are traveling from all over and they 've seen Jesus and they 've seen him heal and they 've maybe had a meal from him um, from the you know feeding of the five thousand and so he 's got some popularity and so you know, if they arrest him now, he's still popular and, and it could cause an uproar. And really, they don't care so much about the people as much as they care about Rome. Because during this time, Pilate would always move from his kind of mansion in Caesarea and he would move into, back to Jerusalem. Um, and we know Pilate's here, obviously, because of later. But, but, but the, one of the main reasons why he would move in, be, because again, the more people are in Jerusalem, the, the more um, nationalism that's happening the more there's a chance that they could try to try to riot and try to take over and, and, and take over the Roman uh, influence in Jerusalem, and so there was always, always, always this tension that exists. Um, the other reason could possibly be that they just didn't want to <clears throat> they didn't want to ruin this this Passover feast, and they wanted to wait till afterwards. And that maybe um, by doing it on the feast, the people would be really upset that they'd that, that, that be ruin, ruining this particular festival. Um, now, if, if that's the reason, they sure didn't mind whenever Judas comes with this opportunity. Um, but, but we'll get to that in a second. Read uh, 3 through 9. And while he was at
1: Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but she will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of
0: her. Okay. So they're in Bethany. Now Bethany is a a, a town about less than 20 miles east of Jerusalem. And again, with all these people flocking to Jerusalem, the cities and the towns around start to kind of fill up. Um, and with with you know, with people and places to stay and all that, and so we don't know exactly why they're there, and we don't know really anything about this Simon the leper. It doesn't Mark Mark doesn't tell us. Um, um, the other gospel writers don't tell us who he was exactly. Most likely, he was somebody who used to have leprosy, and and probably someone that Jesus healed. Um, but but Mark doesn't draw really any attention to to him. He draws all of his attention to this anonymous woman. See Simon the leper, who we don't know anything about. He gets a name. This woman, who does this amazing thing, she doesn't get a name. It's kind of interesting. And he, so all of his attention is 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 focused on this woman, and she she takes this expensive jar. She breaks the jar with even more expensive perfume, or actually oil perfume inside um, this pure nard, which sounds terrible. Um, I have no idea. Um, but but the uh, I looked it up. This this the real name is. Is often called, also called spikenard, which doesn't sound any better, um, and it really was a ex- really expensive, like perfume type oil that was used. And so, um, you know, they point out that this could be they could sell this for some three hundred denarii, and and that's about a ha- almost a year's wage. And we know in chapter six, uh, whenever he feeds the five thousand, that the disciples said, if, if we could have, if we could have two hundred, if we could have two hundred denarii, we could feed these five thousand people so so we know it gives us, gives us an idea of of the kind of money we're talking about with um, with 300 denarii so two things strike me as really strange in this text one is the disciples reaction to this woman it seems a little harsh they scold her right speak very harshly to her and and uh and and they claim that their reasoning is financially <clears throat> that they really they really want to Bless the poor um, there's something about that does, that just doesn't it sounds right it, may, it just doesn 't seem to smell all that right. Notice jesus never um, he never praises the disciples for something that they 've done it, with the exception of Peter you know who who one instance gets it right you 're the messiah that's right, good job, Peter, but guess what? You didn't come up with this on your own. God gave this to you. And then the very next verse, he's you know, rebuking Jesus, and Jesus has to call him Satan. So that didn't last very long. But Jesus never seems to praise them, and yet he praises this anonymous woman. But if the disciples' reaction isn't strange enough, Jesus' reaction to them, to me, is even stranger. Like he, He's totally fine with this. And Drew and I were talking earlier, and he, he said it best. He said, you know, if you were to tell me this story, and, and if you were to have me guess Jesus' reaction, my guess is he would probably react the way the disciples react. What, what are you doing? No, don't do this. I mean, think about his, his, um, his word to the, uh, to, the, to the rich young ruler. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Think about his, his um, admiring and praising this, this poor widow who gave in two mites, like two pennies, like that woman could live for probably two years off of this, this amount of of oil, and and yet Jesus seems to want her extravagant devotion, like he seems to want it. Like, and the other thing is, it's interesting to me is all the other times when Jesus heals somebody and they're wanting to go tell everybody, and he's saying, no, 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 don't tell anyone. Keep it. Listen, I don't need the press. I don't want. This doesn't help me. I don't want that, you know. And here he's saying, yes, I want it. I want it. So what's happening here? Um, Jesus seems to let the disciples know. He he somehow perceives what they're describing and talking about amongst themselves, as he always seems to do. And he says, it's not really about the money, it's about the devotion. He wanted her devotion. And like I said, they claim to want to use it for the poor. Um, but Jesus makes himself in this moment. He makes himself more important than what they could do for the poor. So either Jesus is the greatest ego, uh, egomaniac that's ever lived, or he's crazy, insane, or he really is who he believes he is. He says he is that he's God in their presence, and he's 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 the most um, most valuable being in. That exists in their presence, and this woman um, gets it. so why is this story here? It seems like like the ball's rolling pretty quickly. Jesus is saying in this last chapter he 's saying some pretty pretty big things, making some pretty big claims he 's already predicted his death three times um, he's the passover's coming he 's days away from being crucified, and it, the ball is rolling, and right in the middle of this is just this, this interesting story with this woman that's like pouring over, all over his oil, all over his head, and giving him essentially a bath, and, and, he, and he again affirms, she's, she's doing this for my burial. He's claiming one more time, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die, and they're not getting it. Well, let's read 10 through 11, and then I want to point something out.
1: to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him.
0: So Judas enters the picture. Um, we don't exactly know when he does it. In some of the other Gospels the timing is a little different in terms of when he does it. Um, but but we know at some point in between Bethany and in between them being in Jerusalem he slips away. He gets, he meets with the, the chief priests. He he offers it says he looks for an opportunity to betray him sought an opportunity to betray him and and so right in between you have the chief the chief priests and the Pharisees or the scribes seeking to kill Jesus you have his own disciple his own follower seeking to betray him and right in the midst of it right in the middle of it you have this woman and her and her extravagant devotion you have, you have an anonymous you, if anybody should get who Jesus is and what he's about to do and the significance of it, it would be it would be those that that, have, that know the scriptures the best. It would be those who are the religious leaders who are closest to God. And if not them, it would be at least be his followers who've been with him for three years now. But it's it's neither of those two. And this anonymous woman in the home of a leper, she she recognizes him as king. And recognizes of, of um, him as, as Messiah and, and um, understands what he's about to do. And, and the rest of them don't get it. So Jesus points this out. This, what, what's interesting to me now in, in two chapters, chapter 12 and, and this one, you have these two anonymous women that just seem to get it. They don't have a name. They just get it. And uh, I think there's a lot there that we could kind of sit with and kind of think through. Um, I wonder if Jesus gets mad at the disciples because they're thinking, yeah, you want to you give this money to the poor. You, you think she's wasting this. And yet, he watches this woman this in chapter 12 give her last two pennies to, to the temple, to a system that's corrupt and really all about wealth and power. And Jesus never says she's wasting her money. He praises her for giving her all. Being all in, and I just find that fascinating. the The disciples' claim to feed the poor is um, is kind of interesting. Again, uh, they, they're wanting they're wanting to see everything as utilitarian. That that no no we can use this we can use this to build our case to 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 do these things right to to feed the poor. Uh, most likely, Jesus is referring to this this verse in Deuteronomy fifteen eleven. Deuteronomy fifteen eleven says for there will never cease to be poor in the land. And it goes on. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So, what is what 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 might Jesus be referring to when he quotes Deuteronomy 15? Like it, it almost seems to contradict um, what, what's happening in Deuteronomy with what Jesus says. Jesus says, yeah, the poor you'll always have with you. Is he saying, yeah, the poor, there's always going to be poor. That's just the way things are. It's ordained by God. No, I don't think so. I, I, in, in Deuteronomy, um, the, uh, the, the command is, listen, there are poor. And so he, God established a, a system of generosity because of a broken world. And he expected them to kind of live in this, this place of generosity and, and giving and helping. And Jesus, Jesus is um, the, the very fact that there is poor people is really an indictment on the, the corrupt system that's in place. And so, so Jesus is, is, is not really in any sort of hurry. It doesn't seem like the disciples are never in a hurry before to try to feed the poor. And all of a sudden they see all this money and they think, oh, think of all that we could do with it. And, and Jesus is going, yeah, I own all of this anyway. Like none of this, I've had this at my disposal this whole time. It's not your money that I need. But and ultimately, I think Jesus is highlighting this woman's devotion because I think he believes that when, when the disciples are extravagantly devoted towards him, that it, it will lead to the poor being taken care of. This commentator said this. I thought this was good. In referring to um, referring to the guy in I think it's Mark ten, um, the uh, the rich young ruler. I think that's Mark ten. He says those who hold back on the poor will hold back on what they offer to Jesus, and that's kind of to this this rich young r- ruler. But in this case, it, the flip can kind of also be true that those who hold back on Jesus will also hold back on what they offer to the poor. And so Jesus in this moment isn't wanting the disciples to think utilitarian. What can we do? How can we use this? He's wanting them to stop and to recognize what's about to take place and to worship Him. He's wanting their worship and their devotion. Okay, Anthony, read, read 12 through 16. Please, yeah, read it with delight if you, if you don't mind.
2: On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him.
0: Uh, How far are you? Through 15, sorry. Through 15. No, 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 16. Through 16. Uh,
2: Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover.
0: Okay. So this is, this is um, customary to have the Passover meal in Jerusalem. And so they, they set out to, to come do this, and he sends them ahead to, to prepare the way. And, and there was a lot of preparation. Involved in this. In fact, um, I'm not sure if they've offered this out to everybody or not. But um, Sunnybrook last last year, Sunnybrook hosted a, a Passover thing in the sanctuary where we didn't actually participate. We just watched a guy explain it all. Who was there? Okay, three of us, four of five, four of us. Okay, um, this year they're actually going a, a, one step further. No, they're not going. Never mind. This year we are not doing anything. Like that was must have been decided since Monday morning. Yeah, Monday afternoon. Okay. Someday you should participate in a seder meal, Um, and uh, and it would be awesome. I've never actually participated in one. I've seen one happen, but I haven't. But I haven't participated. Anyway. There is a lot that goes in to prepare this meal there's a lot of things they buy there's a lot of um, symbolism to um to the the four cups and all this stuff that that happens and uh, so he sends them ahead to prepare the one thing i want to that just kind of- struck, struck struck me um, is he he sends them he says to look for this man carrying water The reason that that's interesting is because most of the time it's women carrying the water and so this would have stood out um but the other part that's interesting to me is that the text seems to lend. To, it's not like that. It's not. There, there's no evidence that Jesus somehow secretly planned this or knew that you know set this up. But but somehow he was able to predict this, and just in, maybe in the same way he was able to predict the the donkey, and, and maybe in the same way he was able to, to he will be able to predict the rooster. Um, he seems to have this. This canny ability to know what's happening in the future, as he's predicted his death already three times now. Um, Read 17 through 21.
2: In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been mourned.
0: Okay. So Jesus drops a bomb right right at the beginning of this meal. I mean, think about this. You've been traveling with with Jesus now for three years with these twelve guys. And all of a sudden he's saying that one of them is going to betray him. I mean, talk about a party pooper. Um, like this would have just, this would have been shocking for them to, to grasp what, what was happening here. And in the, the different accounts, Matthew in Matthew, um, Judas asks, because the others go around, and Judas asks, is it I? And, he, and Jesus says to him, you have said so. So he says, so Jesus has this interaction with Judas there in in the Matthew text in the Luke text, Jesus doesn't mention Judas during the actual Passover meal. It says um, before that that Judas sneaks away and he goes and sets up he look he betrays sets this betrayal up with Jesus, and then of course afterwards um, where, where uh, Judas comes and kisses Jesus and and gives him over but but in Luke. Jesus doesn't mention Judas in this text, which is is interesting, but the fact that Luke probably wasn't there, I think actually helps maybe explain that as well. John, who is certainly there, has Jesus hand the bread Jesus dips the bread, hands it to Judas, who's most likely sitting next to him on the on the, on the ground. They don't back then they didn't sit at tables. They didn't sit, sit at a table in chairs. They kind of leaned leaned on the floor. And all the food was in the middle, and they just kind of leaned on their side. And so, most likely, Judas is right next to him, and he dips the bread, hands it to Judas, and says, "What you are going to do, do quickly." And then Judas gets up immediately and leaves. That would have been tense.
2: <laughs>
0: um, but here in Mark, um, Mark doesn't mention Judas's presence, actually at the table or with them, or he doesn't miss doesn't mention them. Him disappearing in the midst of it um, but but Jesus certainly brings it up, but needless to say this this would have been a, a shocking and, and and um sorrowful moment and we get to verse twenty one and uh, where he kind of announces, yes, it is one of the twelve um, and and he says, the Son of man goes as it is written of him we know that isaiah fifty three and psalm twenty two at least those two are predictions of jesus suffering and those those two um, old Testament prophecies, one about um, five about six hundred years before that would be Isaiah and the other one about a thousand years before um, at the at the hands of David, um, both of which would have been um, hundreds of years at minimum before crucifixion was even invented and so if you read those two texts, if you haven't, read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 to kind of help you see the connection of what's about to happen um, with the crucifixion. But, so we know those words. And again, we know that Jesus has predicted his own, his, own, um, his own death. But what's interesting to me, which I'm not going to get into, is what he says about the one who betrays, that it would be better off if he'd never been born. And I always kind of wonder... Now I'm going to I'm going to start something for you and I'm not going to finish it I'm not going to answer it. But so like Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus goes to the cross and that was a really good thing for us. And yet it's really bad for G- for Judas, obviously. And so there's like this conundrum for me. Of I don't know, anybody ever thought of this? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So later on, Drew's going to answer this question for us. Um, he's going to be up here and he's going to prepare a little sermon. esque no, no. <laughs> he's going to perfectly explain the sovereignty of God and and the the the, um, the the free will of man and and how Judas. You know, if it hadn't been Judas, it, it might have been somebody else. And whoever it was going to be is better off if they had not been born. But we're thankful that they did, in some sense. And anyway, he's going to explain all that purpose.
3: You're going to have to go ask him after.
0: Yeah, he's not teaching it. so it's like later on at 10 a.m. 10, 10. No, 10, 10 p.m. Sorry.
2: Oh, it's a joke. I'm serious.
0: Yeah, he's he's not. Yeah, he's not. A, he's not tackling this later. So you're going to have to ask him. It was all a joke. She's teaching next, and she's not teaching on it. I'm just trying to, I'm, listen, I'm trying to start some drama, <laughs> with tension, so that you can have your full. Um, all right. Anthony, take us home with verses 22 through
2: 25. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take eat. this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, "This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it uh, in the new Jerusalem, in the new kingdom of God." Yeah, there you go.
0: Okay. And uh, no, nope, nope. nope. Twenty-five. Okay. So, so we have this this advantage, and, and if you've been in church you've heard these words and you know exactly where they go to. They go to communion. But the disciples didn't have that idea. Like, we, we immediately go Passover, Jesus, communion. I get it. I see how they work. Maybe most of you probably do. But, but the disciples didn't have that luxury of understanding what Jesus is talking about. He, he's saying, okay, this bread is, what, your body? And this cup is your blood? Like to, we're going to drink, right? So blood was not something that the Jews were really fond of. Like it was not a, it was, it was not, it was something they stayed away from. If they touched it, they were unclean. Like this is not something we, right? So this idea of, of blood, um, of, you know, eating his body and drinking his blood was, we again, we know we, we jump there easily, we, we we see it in a little juice and cracker, this is not what the disciples had in mind. It's, so the 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 Passover meal had within it these four cups, and at each at different points in the meal, they would take this cup and they would raise it up, and it would signify different different things that God had done for the Israelites to kind of get them out of of Egypt. And and when he gets to this one, which we're not exactly sure which one, because it's, it's 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 whatever he doesn't say, um, but most likely it's the third or the fourth, and he's and he takes it up, and he kind of, instead of saying what normally is said, he kind of says something different. And he establishes a, a somewhat of a new thing. Um, the, uh, so, so Jesus links this breaking of the bread with the breaking of his body. He links, um, in some sense, the pouring out of this wine to the pouring out of his, uh, his blood on the cross, right? And this is a violent um, imagery in this bread and in this cup, and so one commentator kind of explained it this way: that that what Jesus is announcing in this moment that was huge, that he's making a connection from the lamb's blood spilled as a sacrifice to his own. He's he's helping them see a connection to to um, to him, like that, like if you're going to drink this cup with me, you're going to follow in my footsteps, like. You're linking your life to mine kind of a thing. Um, accepting my destiny, so to speak. And then he seals this with, and, and, um, with this new covenant. Inaugurating this new covenant. One that, that superseded the old one. And so he's establishing something new. Here. Uh, in this moment. It's a big moment. And, and we, we know this is communion. Communion. So have you ever wondered what like, communion's all about and and what it means and what it is and what it isn't and how we're supposed to celebrate it? I, I mean, I, I've, I've wondered this and I've, I've thought about um, wh- whether or not we're doing it right with these little crackers and plastic juice things. Um, well, tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Rachel's going to come up and share about it and then we're going to get to experience it together. So let's take a, a few minute break and then we'll... And then Rachel will come up.
3: Okay. <laughs> Let me get this mic on. All right. We are going to go ahead and jump back in. Let me make sure that this is still going strong. Okay, so as I was kind of getting ready for tonight, I obviously had a lot of time to think about communion, and I realized, I think I took communion for the first time when I was probably about seven. I started to feel a little old because I thought, whoa, I've been taking communion for like 23 years now. It's kind of a long time of communion, but I remember that first time. I don't know if you guys remember the first time you took communion, but my dad's a pastor, and so for me, this was like the holy grail of church, right? I got baptized, now all of a sudden I am able to take part in communion. And my parents explained it to me, and I remember being so excited, like coming to that first time and just thinking, I, you know, I'm following Jesus, and my dad kind of walking me through everything, and just feeling so excited about that. And you know what? Somewhere along the way in this 23-year journey that I've been on, I have to tell you, like, there's a lot of times where I've lost that excitement. There's a lot of times where I have come to the Lord's Supper and it's, I mean, I hate even saying that, but it's been like, okay, eat the bread, chew it up, down the drink. All right, what's next? That's been my attitude many times. Um, and I think another attitude that I've that I've had um, has been maybe even long periods in my life where I I came over and over to communion and all I could think about was how bad I was and how bad I was doing. And instead of remembering Jesus, all I could remember was me. And that's all I focused on. And so I've I've really been thinking a lot about what does Jesus mean when he says, do this in remembrance of me? What does he mean when he says that? What are we supposed to be remembering? And, you know, it's interesting. It, we, we see the 12 in this passage, the first communion, Jesus leading them through that. You know who's not there? It's kind of interesting to think about. There's an apostle missing. Who is it? Paul, right? Because he's not following Jesus at this point at all, actually. But we, we do have um, the book of Romans, which is kind of, his explanation of the gospel and the fullness of who Jesus is. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I think he's saying, do this in, remem- in remembrance of the gospel. And so I want to take a look at, at some passages in Romans tonight um, where Paul kind of takes us through the gospel and what that really is and what that really looks like. And so we're going to start in Romans 4. Verses 22 through... You know it's going to be good if Anthony's laughing. That's all I have to say. So, Okay, 20 through, 22 through 25. He's talking about Abraham here when he says this. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification. It's kind of a fancy word. This is not a good marker. We'll go with the green. Mm -hmm. Justification. Maybe some of you have heard that before. It's just kind of a fancy way of saying us being made righteous in God's sight. The act of that. Read that last verse again. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised from the dead for our justification, raised so that we could be made right, so that we could be made spotless before a holy God. That's justification. I think we're supposed to remember our justification. I do. I don't know what that looked like in your life. Maybe it was a time period or maybe it was a day. And, you know, for me, I, I started following Jesus when I was very young. But I had a lot of years where I strayed far and I ran hard. And so for me, when I think about my justification, I do think about that. But I also think about this period in my life when I was 18 years old when God started whispering and calling me and he started wooing me. And he started um, just revealing himself to me. And it, and it kind of came to a climax one night. For me, it was Thanksgiving weekend of 2004. I was 18 years old. And I was kind of at the end of my rope. Justification. I had this moment where I realized like, what Jesus was offering to me and how beautiful it was and that I could have that if I would surrender, if I would follow him, if I would turn my life over to him. And so I get to remember that. Like I get to remember God calling me, the way that he did that, what that looked like in my life. I get to remember saying yes to that. I get to remember being made right in the sight of God. That is an incredible thing. When I stop to think about where I truly was, how I could not save myself, the depths, the pit that I was in truly, that none of us can save ourselves, and what he did for me, justification. Being able to be adopted into the kingdom of God as a child of God, as a daughter of God, to lose the sin, to lose the shame. I get to remember that Jesus did that. I get to remember that. That's amazing. We're going to go a little bit farther. Um, Romans 6, starting in verse 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That process is a word called sanctification. So I get to remember that. I get to remember my sanctification. For me, I get to look back on these 12 years and say, look how far God's brought me. Not not me in and of myself, but look what he's done in my life. I am so ridiculously grateful to look back at those years and say, God has been faithful over and over and over and over and over in my life, transforming me into the image of Christ for his glory. I get to look at that. That gives me such great confidence, you guys, in in the future of him making me into the image of Christ. I have confidence because I'm able to reflect on that and say, like, you know, it would have been enough. It would have been more than enough if he had just saved me and given me eternal life. That would have been awesome. But he is such an amazing God, he didn't stop there. Because of what Jesus has done for us, that enables us to be sanctified. We have this process where God is actively working in us and on us. And so I think we get to remember that. We get to remember like what you're doing in me. And, you know, we have a long way. I think if God were to show me like, Rachel, this is how far you had to go, I would just break down bawling like a baby. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way. But even when I reflect like on the time that I've been following him, he's so good. He has taken me. It has been him leading, guiding what he's done in my life. I get to celebrate that. I get to rejoice. I get to be so thankful that I'm, you know what? I'm not left on my own to white knuckle it, to try to do all of the good things, to to check off some list. That's not how this works. I say yes to following Jesus. I get to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to look like him. That's what we get to remember. We get to remember that. We get to celebrate that. That leads to worship. It's joyful. It should be so joyful. Okay, we're going to keep going. Paul also talks about this as a future reality. Um, go to eight, Romans 8, starting in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you, but there's lots of days where I just, I live my life. And I forget that I should be remembering some of these things. And I I even forget like how broken the world is sometimes. Lots of times, actually. Um, You know, but then there are days where you know, and I've shared before, I think most of you guys know, my, my little brother has cancer. Getting that phone call, finding that out. Um, or finding out that somebody close to me has been raped. Or um, hearing about another child who's been abused. Like there are days where I just come face to face with how broken the world is, how broken we are. And it absolutely breaks my heart. And sometimes it shakes my faith up. And I have to wrestle through that. And this is a conversation that my husband and I have had plenty of times. He's really good at lovingly reminding me. But like I start describing like it's, this is so awful and it's so terrible. And how, how is this happening and why is this happening? And he just lovingly tells me like, yeah, you know, you know what you're describing is heaven. Like when that happens, that's the inward groaning, the longing. Like that's us longing for heaven. Something called glorification, the coming glorification. That's when everything's going to be set right. That's when I'm not going to have those conversations with my husband anymore about how broken my heart is. I'm going to be able to run to Jesus and be scooped up. And I can do that now too, but I'm not going to need to. Do you get that? I'm not going to need to. It's going to be perfect. And if you have this vision, I hope you don't, but if you have this vision that like eternal life's going to be like us floating around on clouds and playing violins and stuff, it's so not. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing, actually. We are going to get to spend forever with Jesus um, in this perfect world marveling at him here's what is so cool being being like this process here the sanctification that's going to be over that's going to be done I'm going to be made into this perfect image I'm going to be whole I'm going to be whole and I'm going to know my maker face to face and the amazing thing is like we are never going to listen to this we are never going to run out of things to learn about him or things to marvel at or things to fall on our face in worship of It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. And whether you know it or not, that is what you are longing for every time you are hurt by someone. Every time somebody dies and it feels like this feels so wrong. That's because it was never supposed to be this way. And that's what we get to remember. We get to remember what Jesus has done for us in our coming glorification. We get to celebrate that. We get to fall on our face in worship. Thanking him for that. Looking to that, that he, he is our hope. He's our only hope. We get to celebrate these things. It should be a time where we are overcome with joy. And here's the other thing. Like, I want you guys to look around this room. Like, you do get that we're going to do life together forever, If, if you love and follow Jesus, you get that, right? Like sometimes I'll have a conversation with a senior and it goes something like, I'm just so heartbroken because I'm, you know, I'm so close to Leslie. It's been so amazing, you know, here in Stillwater and we're never going to have this again. I just get to be like, wait, like you do realize Leslie loves and follows Jesus. So while we're living out our time, sure, you guys might be separated, but we're going to have eternity. Like She's a daughter of God. You're a daughter of God. We're going to be doing this together forever. We get to do life together. That is awesome. I mean, I like you guys, so I'm pretty stoked. That's going to be amazing. It's going to be truly incredible. And so the other thing I really want us to like focus on and remember tonight is that communion is not something. Jesus didn't say, like sometimes he did about prayer, go into your closet, shut the door, pour your Juice your wine. Pour your wine. You shouldn't be drinking wine in the closet anyway. Let me just stop you right there. (laughs) Stop. But he didn't say, do that. Take your, you know, take the bread. You know, this is all done in secret. No. That's not what happened, right? We're supposed to do this in remembrance as a body because we are the bride of Christ. Because God's doing this stuff, not just for Rachel Vincent, like he 's doing that for us, not just us in this room, the church as a whole like he he is busy and active, working in our lives he's he's bringing this about that 's what he is doing, and so this is not something where you know communion comes, and I just thank you God for my justification, <laughs> sanctification, glorification, those fancy words that 's not you know like when when I take communion, and i didn 't used to know this but In the last few years, like I look around me and I'm so like ridiculously grateful. I see people in my life group and maybe they've shared their testimony in the last year and it was encouraging to me. And like, I'm so thankful for their justification. I'm so thankful for what God is doing in their life. I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for them. And they talk about a struggle that they have and it's encouraging to me to watch them be faithful to Jesus. And so I can thank Him for their sanctification. And I can think forward to the day when we're going to be perfect together, worshiping Jesus, and we're at glorification at that point. That's amazing. Uh, we're going to jump really quick to 1 Corinthians 11. If you, Raise your hand if you were here when we went through Corinthians. Yes, Jesus. Okay, so maybe a couple of you. So this is a whole lot of stuff on you'll see Paul kind of going off on what not to do. And what, what the Lord's Supper is not. Um, but also just kind of the importance of that we're to do this as a family. So let's start in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You see that exclamation point? It's a major emphasis that what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. But listen to this part. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Paul's, I mean, hes he does not commend them. That's quite clear. But it's quite clear that it's something that we're to do as a family. Um, and so, like, we're, we're going to get to do that tonight, which is pretty cool. I'm excited about that. Um, uh, Drew's going to go ahead and turn some music on for us. And there's, there's two things that I, that I want you to do first. We're going to kind of break this up into two parts. The first thing that I want you to do is just to take a minute. And I want you to thank God for this in your life. I want you to just worship. I want you to just be thankful. I want you to just remember who Jesus is and what he has done. And the other thing that I want you to do is I want you to think about the people in this room. And I want you to think about why you are so thankful for these things in their life. So we're going to take a few minutes and do that. And then I'll lead us through the next portion of tonight. Okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And here's what I really want to challenge you to do. And the first thing is this, that if if you're in this room and there is any division whatsoever, if there is anything that you need to go to somebody in here and confess and repent for, Um, I want you to get up and I want you to go to them and I want you to do that. And I want you to be the body of Christ. I want you guys to pray together and I want you to take communion together. And the other thing that we're going to do, if that's not you, um, that's great. I want you to don't just stay where you are, but I want you to go to somebody. Maybe a couple of people can do this together, but go to somebody in this room who you have been grateful for this in their life. Um, this semester this year that you can say like God has been moving in your life in this way I've seen it it's encouraged me I want you guys to talk through that and I want you to pray together and I want you to take communion together and we have several stations set up in here and this could look like you guys going and getting the bread and the juice and kind of bringing that back and having that conversation and praying Um, or you can start by talking and praying and then coming up to get it but we're going to give you guys some time to do that go ahead